Well, no matter how long you've been around, we're always learning, huh? They say you learn something new every day. Uh, we have this little graphic that that, that was kind of cool, and it shows the fact that we're always learning. But the thing about it is it's not just in the mind, right? For us, as we study the Bible, it's in our hearts. And so prayerfully, we're here on a Sunday morning yearning uh, for learning. We want to learn the Word so that we can live the Word. And today, we learn from the 12 that pastors are called to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. We're going to see that. And then we're going to learn from the seven that any service for the Lord demands that we be godly men and women. You know, we're going to learn from the 12, we're going to learn from the 7, and then we're going to learn from the 1, this guy called Stephen, an amazing man with an amazing ministry. And I just really want everyone here to know that God has a calling for your life. We all have that individual calling And God can do great things. He can do anything through anyone. And so may God stir our hearts up today as we study Acts 6. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then, notice the results, the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so it was a time when the church was growing, and so they're kind of experiencing growing pains, right? Uh, There was a complaint against the Hebrews, and they were the Jews with more of a Jewish culture that lived in Judea, that lived there in Jerusalem, And it was directed towards the Hellenists, and they were also Jews for the most part, but they were more of the Grecian culture. They were Greek-speaking Jews. And so it's interesting, these two groups of people, the Hellenists and the the ones that are the Hebrews, they had like a a divisive dichotomy already by nature. It it would be kind of like almost like Republicans and Democrats or almost like a traditionalist versus a modernist. And so as a, as a complaint goes out, don't think it's just a little thing. The, the devil would have loved to use this to divide the church and, and conquer it. We know that's the way Satan operates, right? He sows seeds of discord. And so there's a complaint regarding the, the distribution uh, towards the widows. And so, you know, probably uh, has to do with food, probably has to do with some finances. 
Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, it gives us the details of how the church would take care of the widows who were really widows, who had a good name and had served in the church, the widows who had no children to take care of them. You know, one of the things you got to know about the Bible was there was no safety net. There was no program uh, from the government to take care of the widows. And so when they didn't have anyone to take care of them, they were destitute. And so the church is so beautiful to see in 1 Timothy 5, they, they stepped in to take care of them. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at this and I don't know how you view it. You might think it's not a big deal, but it could have created a deep division, right? The hostility between the two groups was already there and now it's being amplified. And it's also a big deal because this is kind of a crossroads defining the responsibility of a pastor and and a, and a leader, I would say even a missionary, there when a minister, you know, what are they really called to do? You know, what is the pastor really called to do? You know, during this situation, there's probably a big tug. It could have been to the twelve, you know, to get off their knees, to get out of the Bible, to get out of their you know closet or office and, and start serving tables, you know. Uh, uh, that was something that was had had to be decided. How, is that how it's going to end up? But thank God they knew the nature of their calling. And notice again, we read there in verse 2 that the, the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. You know, it, they said it, it, it wouldn't be profitable if we who are called to feed the soul only fed the body if we just work physically and not spiritually it would be wrong it would only make a difference temporally and not eternally and and thank god they they knew the nature of their calling and so what they did is they grabbed the multitudes all the people and they asked them you know look for seven men among you who would be able to serve the widows, so that they, as pastors, might devote themselves continually to the ministry of the word and prayer. And it doesn't mean they're always in their office studying. Part of it is studying. Part of it is praying. But then they're going out there and we're doing counseling. And we're giving the word and we're sharing the word on the streets. It's the ministry of the word and prayer. You know, we read then in verse 5 that the saying, it pleased the whole multitude and, and so cool how God worked it out. The 12 were helped by the seven. And we see the results. If you would look again at verse seven, then the word of God, it spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know, more and more people were hearing the truth and being transformed. And that's what we want. You know, there's a lot of people today who have never heard the name of Jesus. There's a, a lot of people, and we're talking about the second coming. They never heard the first coming. But what happens when churches and congregations and the twelves and the sevens and the ones, what happens when everybody understands what this is all about? I'll tell you what, one thing that will happen is the word of God will spread around the world. And that's what happened right here, you know. Secondly, we see the number of the disciples, it says, multiplied greatly. And it's interesting to note, when you look at the book of Acts, God's math, thank God there was no algebra in the book of Acts. 
But there was addition and there was multiplication. Back in Acts chapter 2, in verse 41, it says, On that day God added thousands of people to the church. And then in Acts chapter 2, in verse 47, it says, He added every single day you know, people to the church. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, it says, He increasingly added to the church. And then we read today in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that the number of the disciples was multiplying. But now we read in verse 7 that they multiplied greatly. And and I tell you what, man, this will happen when pastors know their priorities and they work in, you know, collaboration and cooperation with the congregation. The 12 know what they're supposed to be doing. And the seven know what they're supposed to be doing. And the one, every one knows what he's and she's supposed to be doing. God's word will spread. The disciples will multiply. And then thirdly, it says even the priests were getting saved. I mean, that's big time, you guys. I mean, we want the hard-hearted, hardcore to get saved, right? I mean, the priests, imagine that, the religious guys, sometimes they're the hardest to, to reach, right? I mean, I mean, we want the pimps, the prisoners, the murderers, the addicts, the atheists, right? the ones that others have given up on, the ones that everyone thought could never be saved, the, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the least, the beasts, the priests. We want them to get saved. I mean, isn't it cool when that happens? And that's what we're reading right here. Well, you, well, how can it happen, Manny? I, I know you guys. You know, some of you here, you're here, you know, because you got to be, you're not really interested. But for the most part, you know, you guys want this to happen. You want to see God move. I know you do. And you're wondering, well, how? How can this happen? Well, this is how. We must make sure that the 12, that the teachers, the pastors, the the preachers, they're allowed to devote themselves continually to the ministry of the word and, and prayer. Understand our priorities. Social benevolence is part of what we do as a church, and, and we need to do that obediently unto the Lord. But the heart of what we do is is to give the word and, and to pray for people, the spiritual good and, and the glory of God in that realm. You know, and therefore the whole church needs to understand that priority. You know, uh, in, in, the, in the world today, in the churches today, uh, you know, there's different scenarios all, all around the world. You know, some pastors, they don't even have that choice, right? I mean, there's some guys out there, they don't have the help they need, and they're forced kind of to do it themselves, right? If, if they don't serve tables, it doesn't get done. If they don't clean toilets, it doesn't get done. If they don't do administration, you know, it doesn't get done. So they have to do it themselves. That's sometimes the case. Uh, other pastors, they do have the help they need, but they don't delegate and they take it upon themselves, you know, because, you know, they want to do it all. That's their fault. And then there's also a third category of pastors who, who do have the help and they do delegate, but when they are in their office, they're not on their knees. They're not studying the Bible the way they should. They don't realize that I'm supposed to study this. And I, yes, I know it's an objective truth, man, but I want to hear from God so that I can give to the people that which I receive from the Lord. You know, and so... 
I'm not saying that we got it all together, but that's our desire. Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches out there. They're not really interested in just teaching the Bible. You know, you'll go and you'll hear them say their witty sayings or quote, you know, scholars and psychology and experience. And, and, and what we got to know is God wants us to be ministers of his word. And we have to bathe it in prayer. That's the priority of the, of the pastor. And so those guys, they don't prepare for the people. They don't prepare for preaching. They don't study the scriptures. And therefore, they have neglected the clear teaching of Acts chapter 6. And so, you know, for us, there needs to be that uh, congregational cooperation, uh, pastoral delegation. There needs to be determination. And there's a great visual over in the book of Exodus. And I was wondering if you could turn there. Because I'll tell you what, and I don't know if you know this or not, but Exodus, it gives us pictures of theological truths. And so sometimes you can see it, like visualize, and it helps you understand things better. And so at Exodus chapter 17, it says in verse 8, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And, and Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on, on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And so can you visualize that, you guys? Can you see... Like, you know, Moses there and God saying, okay, the children of Israel, you're going to fight this war with Amalek. Now, Amalek, they're down there. Amalek in the Bible is a typology of the flesh. And so, you know, they're, they're down there and they're swinging swords and they're fighting and they're punching and they're kicking and all that kind of stuff is going on. And when Moses' hands are raised up, they're winning. But then after a while, and who knows, maybe his arms were buff. They just got really heavy. And they started, he started, he just couldn't hold. Oh man, my arms are getting tired. And so what ended up happening? Then the people started losing. He would notice that when, when he's up, kind of like praising God in communion with God as the leader of the people of God that they were winning. But then when he, was, he wasn't able to do that, then they were losing. And so they saw the whole thing. And so what they did, they got Aaron and they got her. They put a rock right here and they, one got on this side, one got on this side and they held up his arms so that he could pray, so that he could pray, so that he could lift up his arms to the Lord. And as a result of that, the people won. And it's the same thing we see in, in, in the book of, of Acts. I think we have a picture here. Isn't that an amazing picture, you guys? That's, that's the truth. That's the reality of where we need to be. You know, when we hold up the hands of our leaders, our pastors, allowing them to spend time with the Lord, then 
it makes a difference in the lives of the people. You know, the priorities for them are to be ministering the word and to devote themselves continually to prayer. It's interesting, the ministry of the priests in the Old Testament was really the same thing. We read in Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, they shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you, which is a picture of prayer, and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. And so the priests were teaching the word. They were offering the incense, which was symbolic of prayer to God. And then there was the sacrifice unto salvation. You guys, and that's where we need to be as well. And I'll tell you what, I mean, it it is a picture for the pastors and the church, but in one sense, it's kind of a picture for all leaders. If maybe not as much, you know, but, but for you dads at home, you heads of your home in the word, in prayer for your family, providing victory for them, you're going to see God work. You know, we see it in the word and and prayer. The sacrifice would then save. And we got to know that as a church, that his word is sure and pure and it's powerful. My word isn't. My word is weak. My word is questionable. So give me the Bible. When you're sharing with your friends at work, when you're sharing with people, give them the Bible, not your witty statements or your quotations or all the other things that you have to mull through. No, just give them the word. And you watch what God will do. You know, when we're ministering, whether it's preaching or counseling or encouraging people, we have to give the word. And and that's what pastors are supposed to do. And we're supposed to pray for you. We are supposed to get on our knees and pray for you. And dads are supposed to get on their knees and pray for their family. And mom's supposed to get on their knees and pray but especially pastors. You know, on the inside of my Bible, uh, the cover, I have a quote by John Owen, and it says, He that is more frequent in his pulpit to his people than he is in his closet for his people is but a sorry watchman. You know, and you got guys, and all they want to do is teach, and all they want to do, you know, is preach. They like teaching, but let me ask you a question. Do you like praying? It's, it's the ministry of the word and prayer. And we got to get right. We got to get back to it. We got to get back to our knees. We will not see victory without this that is clear in the book of Acts. We're to pray for you like, like Epaphras did in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. This is Epaphras who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ greets you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And, and so that word laboring fervently, it literally means in the Greek, praying to the point of exhaustion. That's what we're supposed to do as pastors, laboring in the word and laboring in prayer. And we learn that from the 12, that pastors are called to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Secondly, in our text, we learn from the seven that any service for the Lord demands that we be godly men and women. 
And so, you know, I don't know how you guys feel. Again, you know, they make the announcement to the congregation. Okay, we need some volunteers. Anybody here want to give out breakfast burritos? Anybody here, maybe you can swing a spoon or push a pin, administration, you know, a donation. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, we might think, well, of course, I mean, anybody can do that, right? At first thinking, we're thinking that, well, anybody can do that, right? Not according to the Bible. It's interesting, when we look at the scriptures right here, the apostles mentioned three things that they would be looking for, for someone to do something even as menial as serving tables for the Savior. Number one, they've got to have a good reputation. And that means that it's obvious to others what's going on in this person's life. Number two, they have to be full of the Holy Spirit. So that when people look at them, they're like, man, there's no doubt about it. Homeboy is anointed by God. And number three, they have to be full of wisdom. And that means they know the word and how to apply it. They, they, they know uh, the scriptures and they're full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And, and so, you know, you think about that and it, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if we've really seen it that way. It's important for us because if we don't really hold to these things as pastors and overseers and putting people in places of ministry, then the church will begin to go downhill, deteriorate, and I bet you eventually die. Because this is what the Bible says they need. I mean, sometimes you wonder about people involved in ministry. To be honest with you, you wonder if they're really saved. Because they sometimes you wonder, man, do they... Do they really have a hunger for the Lord? Are they really willing to make that sacrifice in order to serve? We just need to be careful that we know this is the requirement that not, not, not just the gifted, but the godly, not just the available, but the holy. You know, C.H. Spurgeon said, whatever call a man may pretend to have, if he has not been called to holiness, he certainly has not been called to the ministry. And so you learn from the 12, right? I mean, you better be in in the Word and and in prayer if you want to be a pastor. And you learn from the seven that even something as menial as serving tables demands of us that we have a good reputation that are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And so I can already hear some of you guys right now. I can read your thoughts. I know what you're thinking. You're like, well, then I can't serve. I mean, I was going to come on Sunday night, but now I'm not going to come because I'm not full of the Holy Spirit. I've been messing up. I'm not full of wisdom. And, and you know what I would say to you, man, if that's you and you're, and you're, you're saying I, I'm not that or I'm not this, then do something about it. Do something about it right here, right now. Give your heart to the Lord. Come to a place where you have abandoned your life to Him. He died for you. Why can't you live for Him? It's only one life. Soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, I got to make money, it's going to burn. I got a family to take care of. Take care of your family by being in the perfect will of God. Well, it's not convenient for me. It never will be. 
Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with wisdom and serve the Lord. Whatever gifts, whatever talents he's given to you. I trip out on people. And, I, you know, I, I don't know. You guys all have to just decide that on your own. But, you know, like some people, they've been going to church for a long time. They've been Christians for a long time. And, and there's, they don't have any ministry in their life. You know, they don't know what gifts they have. They don't know the calling on their life. You know, they, they come to church, they go, they live their own life, they have fun. It's all about that. And it's like, wait a minute, time out, man. I mean, God made you with gifts. And I'm not saying that it always has to be in the building or in the church right here. You know, because I know sometimes there's ministry out there. I'm fully aware of that. But sometimes people are not ministering here or there. And they're not using their gifts and they're burying their talents. I just encourage you today, man, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with wisdom. Your father said he would give you the Holy Spirit if you want him. The other day I was listening to a song by Phil Wickham, not a profound statement, but he just said, all I want is all of you. And I, and I think that God would probably say the same thing about us. All I want is all of you. you. Guys, that's where we have to be. I encourage you today to be selected, man, as, as one of the seven chosen, not by the church or the leaders, but chosen by God. You know, all these guys that were chosen here, they had uh, Greek names, and so that implies they were Hellenists, uh, I mean, from the day they were born, they were given that name, right, to minister eventually, specifically to the Hellenists. And I believe the same thing for you, that the day you were born or even before time began, God had a specific ministry for you. You know, and as you're there, just giving yourself to the Lord, you're cultivating the gifts and the godliness, usable by God, then chosen by Him, maybe to hold up the hands of a pastor or maybe to be a pastor yourself, you're going to discover that 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 one position is no better than the other. You know, what were you made to do? You were made to do something. You know, the other day I saw the National Football uh, College game. Any of you guys see that? Come on, none of you? All right, a few of you. And it was just so cool, man. Georgia, Alabama. Sorry, Georgia fans. I'm sorry. But it was amazing. It was a, a great game, number one. You know, but in second half, coach made a decision, put in this uh, redshirt freshman, and uh, he did great. It was just a great game at the end. Uh, uh, I don't know. I want, let me tell you real quick. Um, I guess uh, my wife was play, praying for Alabama. She said, Lord, be with Alabama. I don't know why she was praying for them. But she wanted me to tell you that she was praying for them, okay? <laughs> and anyways, what happened, make a long story short, you know, they missed a field goal, goes into overtime. Man, Georgia kicks a 51-yard field goal. Looks like it's over because Alabama, the quarterback gets sacked. They're out of field goal range. It looks like it's over. But man, the, the next play, the quarterback gets back. He's a southpaw. He's looking right, looking right, looking right. Then boom, he throws left. I mean, it was like a 65 yard touchdown and they won the national championship there in front of millions of people every football player's dream and then right there you know after it's all said and done they put the microphone in the quarterback's face and what does he say i just want to give all the glory to my lord and savior jesus christ 
And, and you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's like you might say, well, he probably worked hard at being a quarterback, and I bet you he did, but he was gifted. He was made to do that. And just like he was made to do that, you were made. You were made to do something. And you've got parents here that are taking their responsibility seriously. You know, moms and dads and, you know, siblings and servants. I pray that we would know that. You know, when we get to heaven and rewards are are then, you know, passed out, it's not going to be based on the ranks of your religious position. It's going to be based on whether or not you simply did what God made you to do. You know, in looking at our text, we learn from the 12 that pastors are called to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. We learn from the seven that any service for the Lord demands that we be godly men and women. And then we learn from the one that God can do great things, anything, through anyone. Look at verse 8. It says, "And, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And, and Stephen now is introduced in the book of Acts. Uh, he was chosen as one of the, the, the seven. And so you might think, well, he's not really going to be all that significant. I mean, he's not a pastor. He's not one of the, the top 12, so to speak. And I'll tell you what, you guys. It, it, it is possible that this, this, this man, Stephen, aside from Christ, is the most important man in the book of Acts. And we're going to see that next week. What ends up happening is, is they kill him. They end up killing Stephen. He has the honor of, of, of being the first Christian martyr. And when he died, you guys, we're going to see as we go through the next chapter that he said, Lord, don't charge his sin against them, just like Jesus. And then when he died, as they're stoning him, he's looking up, heaven's open, and Jesus is standing there to receive the first Christian martyr. And we're going to see as we go through this that that was his calling. That was what God called him to do. And it's so important for us to understand that that's really all we got to try to ask the Lord to show us is, Lord, show me what you want me to do. You know, we already know in verse, uh, verses that we've studied that he's full of faith. I mean, he's full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. In, in verse 8, we see he's full of faith and, and then power is doing these great signs and wonders. And uh, so God's using him in a great way. But then after the description of Stephen, we see the opposition to Stephen. 
And uh, we know that that's what happens, that when you're being used by God, those will be opposed, right, by the enemy, right? And so uh, what happens is these people right here, it says, from the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, that's interesting. We don't know who they are, the synagogue of the freedmen, but if you just kind of look at the word itself, synagogue is Jewish. And, and more than likely, what commentators say is synagogue of the freedmen is a group of guys that perhaps are descendants of men who were freed probably because they were prisoners of war that fought in the Roman army. They had been captive, but then they were set free. And so these guys are actually, it's a synagogue of the freedmen, which is an interesting thing because Cilicia is mentioned here, and that's where Saul is from. And of course, we know that Saul was born a Roman citizen. And we always wonder, well, how was he born a Roman citizen? Most of them will say probably because his father was in the Roman army. And so you begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And what you realize is that the ones who are fighting against Stephen amongst them is this guy named Saul, right? And then they're and they're and they're arguing and they they can't win the argument against Stephen because he's full of faith and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. He knows the scriptures, right? And then what happens? What do you guys do when you can't win an argument? When you're losing an argument, what do you do? Start yelling, right? Come on. You know, it's a pride. It starts, you know, you know, um, unfortunately rearing its ugly t- head. And next thing you know, you're, you're lying or you're reaching for things. And, you know, God forbid, sometimes it even gets violent. And that's what's happening here. They can't win this argument. They, they then, in, you know, secretly induce people to tell lies about Stephen. Hey, he said this about the temple. And who knows, perhaps he did say what Jesus said, that one day the temple would be destroyed. But he didn't say he would destroy it. And perhaps he did say that Jesus came to fulfill the law. But he didn't come to, to, to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. They're twisting everything. They're, they're making this bad for Stephen. Because ultimately, what do they want to do when you can't beat them? Beat them. You know what I mean? I mean, eventually, what do they want to do? They want to kill him. And that's exactly what they do. I mean, what ends up happening in the end is Stephen lays down his life for the Lord. And that was his calling. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, looking at it from a human perspective, you look at this fine young man with such a great future I mean, man, obviously God can use him in an amazing way. And, and, and you wonder, well, why did he have to die? And of course, we know what ended up happening was later they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul who was voting for Stephen's death. Saul saw the whole thing and he gets saved. And he changes And he would have never got saved if Stephen didn't die. At the end of the day, all that matters, it doesn't matter how long we live. That doesn't matter. What matters is how we live. Whether or not we did what God called us to do. I think of Nadine. And I don't know if God's calling her home But it looks like it. 
And you try to make sense of everything. It doesn't make sense until you see. Well, that's how her dad got saved. That's how her mom got saved. That's how her brothers got saved. That's how some of you got saved. And we realize that all that matters, and you look at the 12 and you look at the seven and you look at the one, God, what do you want me to do? And I have to die. If I have to die, if I have to die to myself, so be it. You guys don't get caught up in this world. I mean, at the end of your life, you're going to be there at your dying bed. And who knows? Maybe we'll get raptured. You'll get be left behind. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> you know, maybe you're going to be there at your dying bed. And you know what? You're going to have a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas. Oh, man, if I would only known I woulda, I shoulda, I coulda done that. No, you, what you got to do is make a decision today right here in this sanctuary right now. I'm giving it all to God. No reserves so that there'll be no regrets. God, what do you want me to do? And then you follow him. Let me close with a a story uh, my wife told me about. You know, she's reading this girl uh, devotional, and I'm not ashamed to read it to you guys, man. It's so good. It's by a gal named Joanna Weaver. It's at the feet of Jesus, and... It's kind of funny because every day she says, oh, let me read this to you. It was so good today. I'm like, you say that every day, but that's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, but it was about this, uh, this man who wanted to serve the Lord. And uh, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'll, I'll do anything for you. And, and the man said, well, I want you to carry this, this wagon of rocks up to the top of the hill. And the man said, really? I get to do that for you? Oh, praise God. Yes, I would love to do that. And so the Lord says, yeah, all you got to do is take it up there, leave it there, and you're done. Thank you so much for being my servant. And so he was all happy, you know, taking the, the wagon and, and going up. I mean, it was, wasn't, I mean it, was, it was a burden, but it was not too much. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I mean, there was a slight, light burden, but, you know, it's not much. He's going up the hill. But as he begins to go up the hill, what ends up happening is right around the bend, he sees a friend who says, Hi, hey, what are you doing with that wagon? Where are you going with that wagon? Yeah, I'm going up the hill. I'm doing this for God. I'm taking these rocks up there. And so the friend around the bend says, Hey, can you, this is so amazing. I was just praying right now, asking, you know, for help. Can you take this, these pebbles of of rocks for me up up the hill? I want to do it. Didn't have time. And the guy, you know, he looks at it and he's like, oh, okay, I'm pretty sure God will want me to do that. I'll do you that favor. And so, you know, they put the pebble of, of uh, the bag of pebbles in, in the, the wagon and he's going up the hill. And, uh, and it's getting a little heavier now. And to be honest with you, it's, he's not praising as strong as he was in the beginning, you know. But it's a little, a little struggle. And next thing you know is he's going up there. And he, and he meets a, a gal. Actually, he knows this gal. It's a friend of his. Her name is Sandy. And she's got a whole bunch of sand. 
And he likes Sandy. She's kind of pretty, pretty. And so what ends up happening is she says, hey, where are you going with that wagon of rocks and pebbles? And I'm going up the top of the mountain. I'm doing it for God. And she says, that's funny. You know, it just so happens that I wanted to take this sand up there, but I just haven't had time. I've been doing my thing. And he's, oh, okay. Can you take the sand for me? Sure, I guess so. And then, you know, she, she fills the wagon with the sand. He's going up with rocks and pebbles and sand and and what ends up happening is that before you know it, man, he lost his joy. He lost his joy. He lost his praise. And then he just stops and he just talks to God and he says, God, what are you doing to me? This is too much for me. I can't handle it. Next thing you know, God shows up and says, what are you doing with all that stuff in your wagon? <laughs> my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That was not my calling for you. I told you, follow me. And what can happen in life? And I'm telling you this, the world will say, you got to do that. And then that person says, you got to do that. And the question is, what does God say? Find out what God says. Please, I beg of you, find out what God says to do and do it. It doesn't matter if you're the 12. It doesn't matter if you're part of the seven. You're one. You need to make that decision. That's one. Knowing that God can do anything with anyone.